Hi there! This is the PowerPoint Tribe, where our vibe is faith and our food is the Word. Prepare to be strengthened and encouraged through the teachings of God's Word and the ministry of the Spirit. Isn't it amazing that for how many months we, we tabernacled in Psalms chapter 23? Several months, about five months, just staying there. The Word of God is so limitlessly elastic. You can stretch any verse of Scripture to any length if you receive help by the Holy Ghost. When I was teaching the very first installment, I didn't know I'll be coming this far. Even me, I didn't know. I was just saying, okay, Lord, what next? And then He will show me something else. And then He will show me something else. Every single week, I have to believe for what to teach you every Sunday. I don't assume that, okay, I, we know how to teach now. We never get experienced in the teaching of God's Word. You can get experience in being a professional banker and being a professional data analyst. You can be a professional mechanic, an experienced, you know, supply uh, chain uh, director or anything. But you cannot be experienced in teaching God's word. Because experience in the word is familiarity. You never get experienced. You come to it again as if you never heard it before. You come with that freshness, that childlikeness. You come with, with that sense of curiosity as if you've never heard that word before. And it is that curiosity that will bring understanding. The Bible says the light, um, the entrance of your word brings light and understanding to the simple. People who don't assume they know. Those are the ones that receive the best revelation knowledge from God's word. You don't come experienced. Ah, we know this thing. Ah, what's there? Psalm 33, what's that? No, you go there as if you've never heard that verse of scripture before. And that is how God's word illuminates your heart. It illuminates the heart of the simple, not the heart of the wise. The simple. Because simple in Yoruba is okay. <laughs> it's foolish. That is, this person doesn't know. The Bible says it is that person that receives the light of God's word. The light of God's word comes on the heart of a simple, a simple person, a simple heart. The heart of a person who is just willing to learn. Not somebody who already has preconceived ideas about what the word ought to say. Praise the name of the Lord. Amen. 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 So today, by God's grace, we'll be wrapping up this series, and it's been such a joy and a privilege to, you know, take you on this journey. So by God's grace, today, I'll be sharing with you what I've titled, Flip the Table. Flip the Table. Flip the Table. Psalms chapter 23. Flip the Table. Flip the Table. Flip the Table around. Flip the table. So, Psalms chapter 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Thou anointed my head with oil, my cup run over. Hallelujah. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life he says i will dwell in the house of the lord forever forever Woo! glory to jesus wow amazing so flip the table what am i trying to say there so last week we talked extensively about how the lord prepares for us isn't it he says that prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemy so the lord prepares for you and before he prepares or rather before he prepares um before you appear at the table, he prepares you for the table. So he both prepares the table for you, and he prepares you for the table. And so what delays your appearance at the table most often than not is not the readiness of the table, but your own readiness to appear before the table. And then we talked about how that he furnishes our table almost always in enemy context, so that you can learn to exercise your faith and dominion over the devil and over all the power of the enemy, so that nothing shall by any means 
hurt you. It's such a powerful revelation knowledge we feasted on last week. And so between, you know, as I meditated through the course of the week and asking God, what would you like me to share with your people? Because I do not take it for granted, you know, this Sunday. And he began to show me. He said there is a, there is a link between that first part of verse 5 and the second part. He says there is something that is unspoken. And he showed me and I was so blown away. And that's exactly what I'm going to be showing you this morning. He says, thou prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Now, before thou anointed my head with oil, something else happened before God anointed David's head with oil. Let's go to 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel chapter 16 from verse 7. The Bible says, and the Lord spoke to Samuel and said, <laughs> Look not on his countenance, nor on the height of his stature. He says, for I have rejected him, for I have refused him. Now, it means that before Samuel approached Jesse's house, the Lord had already decided who he was going to anoint, isn't it? Because the Lord had already vetted Eliab, and he already said, I refuse him, I reject him. Ever before Samuel approached Jesse's house, he says, I have already rejected him because God does not see the way man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. And so it was the heart matter that was the qualification and the disqualification for both Eliab, Shammah, Binadab, and of course the qualification for David. It was a hard thing. That is, the Lord looked at all their hearts, and the only heart he could work with was the heart of David. The Bible says, he told Samuel, I already have rejected him. Don't be carried away by his muscular torso. Don't be carried away by his six packs. Don't be carried away by the height of his stature. Don't be carried away by the things that men typically get carried away with. There is something much more that I look at. That is my basis of evaluation. He says it's the heart. It's the heart. Second Chronicles chapter 16 from verse 9. Bible says the eyes of the Lord searches to and fro the earth. The eyes of the Lord searches to and fro the earth. Bible says looking for someone on whose behalf he will show himself strong. That is, the Lord is, listen, there is nothing that God cannot give you. There is nothing he cannot furnish you with. But the challenge is this, which is where we see how David was the man that was, a, 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 I mean, several distances above other men in scripture. Above other men, above other men in his, in his generation, above his contemporaries. The Bible says the eyes of the Lord searches to and fro, looking for someone on whose behalf he will show himself strong. That is the challenge about God manifesting in your life. It's not that he does not want to manifest. Are you hearing what I'm saying? That is he's so eager to manifest, he's just looking for somebody that can accommodate that manifestation. He said, I'm looking for somebody that I will manifest through. I'm looking for someone that I will bless. I'm looking for somebody that I will anoint. I'm looking for somebody that goodness and mercy will follow him all the days of his life. I'm looking for somebody that would give me so much glory. I'm just looking. Out of the 200 million people in Nigeria, the 6.2 billion people in the world, the eyes of the Lord is searching to and fro. So you mean there are not so many people like David. So he says, He's looking for people whose hearts are perfect towards him. So, a heart matter again. That is, he looked through all the sons of Jesse. There was none of them whose heart was perfect towards God, except David. And, and so, that was the protocol for finding David. It was the heart of David that attracted God to David. 
It was the heart, listen to this. It was the heart of David that attracted God to David. God looked at Eliab, he looked nice, his shirt was ironed, he was looking good, his bank accounts were filled, but guess what? The Lord rejected him. He looked at Eliab, looked at Shammah, looked at Abinadab, and he said, I've rejected these guys because heart-wise, they are disqualified. Because the eyes of the Lord searches to and fro the earth looking for someone on whose behalf he will show himself strong. People's hearts are perfect towards him. And that was the basis upon which he found David. Psalms chapter 89 verse 20. Bible says, David, my servant, have I found. That means God was searching. You don't find what you don't search for. And so David was found. Hey, he wasn't, we, we say David was chosen. He was chosen quite all right. But it was found. It was found because the criteria God was looking for was not found in anyone else but him. He was found. The Bible says, David, my servant, have I found with my holy oil. With my holy oil have I anointed him. He says, the enemy would not outwit him, nor the son of wickedness afflict him. So we see that before he prepares the table before me, or rather before he anointed my head with oil, David was found. Are you, are you hearing what I'm saying now? Because Psalms chapter 89 verse 20 says, David, my servant, have I found. I didn't find Eliab. I didn't find Shammah. I didn't find Abinadab. But I found David because my eyes run to and fro the earth looking for someone on whose behalf I will show myself strong. Someone whose heart is perfect towards me. And that was the criteria that David obviously passed that made the Lord find him. Now, once he found him, he does what he always does when he finds a man like that. He anoints his head with oil. This is the basis of the anointing my head with oil, my cup runs over. So you see, the, you see that there is some distance between he prepares the table before me in the presence of my enemies and he anointed my head with oil. Because if David says all of that and you don't juxtapose that with other things he had said in scripture, you may not understand why he became a candidate for that anointing. He anointed my head with oil, my cup runs over. Praise God. Can we celebrate <laughs> Pastor Toro, please, can you help, help, help me with that? Thank you so much, and God bless your heart. Can we celebrate him once again? Amen. Amen and amen. Let's celebrate him until he leaves. Amen. These things are very spiritual. Amen. Praise God. Hallelujah. Did you hear what I just said? He anointed my head with oil. My cup runs over. So what was the difference between David and every other person that had lived before him and every other patriarch? What, what was so special about David? Because this is the last installment. If you don't get anything around everything I've been saying for the last 16 weeks, please don't miss this. This is the bane. This is the very core of what, I'm, what I've been teaching. This is the core of it. Because we've been talking about so many revelation knowledge that David exposes in Psalm 723. But exactly how do we become David? That's, that's really the big deal, isn't it? How do we become David? The reason why we admire the things David said is because of who David was. And so sometimes, don't just admire what's happened to someone. Become the person. The same thing would happen to you. Don't just admire the fact that David experienced so much God in his life. He expressed so much of God's guidance, so much of God's shepherd nature. How did he become this? This is how he became it. Listen, every single person is looking for the table the Lord has prepared for them. David was the only one that flipped the table and said, Lord, I want to prepare a table for you. That was the difference 
between David and every other person, most Christians actually alike, who are always looking for what to get from God because, I mean, God has prepared a table before me now in the presence of my enemies. So I'm going to God because of the table that he has prepared for me. David was the only guy. And that was why the Lord eternalized his name. You don't understand. David was the only guy that said, God, forget about anything that you have to give me. I want to prepare you a table. I want to prepare you a table. He said, Lord, it's enough, enough of looking for what you have prepared for me. I want to prepare you a table. I want you to scan to and fro the earth and look for a table, a buffet that, you, that would attract you. And I want you to choose my table. What was the difference? That was the, that was the difference. David was the only guy that said, God, forget about anything that, I can, that you can give me. I want to give you. I want to give you. He flipped the table on God. That was why he was found. That was why he was anointed with the holy oil. And that was exactly why his cup began to run over and mercy and goodness began to pursue him. Praise the name of the Lord. And so the question today for every single one of us today is this. Are you preparing the Lord a table? If the Lord scans to and fro the earth and is looking for somebody on whose behalf he will show himself strong, someone he wants to dine with, will he choose your table over another person's table? Because the challenge is never really about God's preparation for you. He's prepared for you. But how many of us are prepared for him? How many of us prepare a table before him? Because that's the difference between David and Eliab and Shammah and Abinadab. David prepared a table before the Lord. So I, when I examined David's table, when I examined his table, when I looked at the things he set before the Lord for him to enjoy, uh, I, I saw some things that if we can install those things on our table, the Lord would be attracted to our table. David looked for how to give God. How, how dare you look at God and say, what can I give you? How dare you look at God in the face and ask him, what do you need? God is the giver of all things. But David said, sir, no, forget about what you can give me. I want to give you, I want to make my life a living sacrifice. Holy, acceptable unto you, my reasonable service. And so when I looked at David's table, what was he furnished with? The first thing that David furnished his table with to serve God was a surrendered heart of worship. A surrendered heart of worship. Listen to this. A surrendered heart of worship will get God's attention 100% of the time. 100% of the time, a surrendered heart will get God's attention. David had a surrendered heart of worship every single time. You know, it's easy for us to assume our standing with God. You see, there, there is something David consistently fought in scripture. It's called presumption. How many of us know what, the, what, what presumption means? Presumption is the assumption of your right standing that is void of evaluation. I'll say that again. Presumption is your assumption of your right standing that is void of evaluation. That is void of checking with God. David never entered into that kind of foible. Why? Because he was a man with a surrendered heart. He laid his heart bare before the Holy Spirit and said, Search me, O God. Psalms chapter 139. Let's go there. Psalms 139, verse 23 to 24. He says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. He says, Try me and know my thoughts. And check if there's any wickedness, any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. What is wickedness? I think I've defined it for, for many of us here before. How that wickedness is not when you kill someone. No. Wickedness just means 
weak head. That is weak when you are twisted. A weak is always twisted. A weak is not straight. That's wickedness. So a twisted person eventually will do all kinds of evil and all of that. But the reason why he's doing that kind of evil is because he's, initi- he's fundamentally twisted. He is wicked. And so David is saying, God, I never assume my posture with you. I'm always checking with you. Lord, search me. Search me. Try my heart. Try my heart. David, have you seen the way he repented? He repented like a baby. He repented like someone who didn't care whose ox was God, who didn't like his face. He repented with so much meekness. For the first time that he went so far away from God's presence, once Nathan showed up in his, you know, in his palace and told him what he had done, he broke down in tears and began to ask God, cast me not away from your presence, take not your Holy Spirit from me, restore unto me the joy of salvation and renew your right spirit within me. On tape, David's table was a surrendered heart of worship, a heart that never assumed, a heart that never felt, oh well, uh, God is always for me. No, a heart that was always asking, Lord, search me. How many of us have internal controls in our in our offices, internal controls. What do they do? They check the, the balances of the books. They check the, the, the reconciliations. They check the postings. And they ensure that you are ready for the external auditors. Right? They, they check internally to be sure that you are ready for external auditors. If the internal control doesn't check those things consistently, when the ex- external auditors come, there will be a great transgression. There will be a great gap between what the external auditors find and what they ought to have found. And so the eternal control is supposed to keep checking to ensure that you are on track at par so that when the external auditors come, they will tick you right. Let's go to Psalm 19. Psalm 19, verse 13. David said, Keep back your servant, O God, from presumptuous sin. Keep back your servant, O God, from presumptuous sin. He says, Let them not have dominion over me. Let them not have dominion over me. He says, so that I can be upright, so that I can be straight, so that I will not be wicked, so that I will not be twisted, so that I can be straight, let them not have dominion over me. He says, then I will be innocent in the great transgression. Because presumption does not afford you to consistently check with God. It does not afford you to consistently check on a regular, on a daily basis. You are not, you are not checking because you think you are falling. You are checking to ensure you are standing. There's a difference. You're not checking to say, have I fallen? No, you're checking to be sure and to continue to keep that posture of submission unto the Lord. Are you hearing what I'm saying? And so he says, keep me from presumptuous sins so that they don't have dominion over me. He says, so that I can be upright and I will be innocent against the day of great transgression. Because if I am not, if I'm presumptuous and I'm not checking with the Lord daily and I'm not asking God, search me, try me and all of those things, eventually when the external auditors come, there will be great transgression. There will be a great gap between where I ought to be and where I am because there was no consistent checking. The Bible says examine yourselves in the Lord, whether you still be in the faith. Evaluate yourself consistently against the standards of righteousness. Are we together, sir? Are we together? And so there was something about David that never assumed. There was something about him that never assumed. He had such a surrendered heart. A heart that surrendered everything. He surrendered his heart. And listen to this. If he has your heart, he has everything. I remember listening to a message by Bishop David Oedipo several years ago, maybe 10 years ago. And he repeated this statement so many times in that message that that's all I remember from the message. 
My son, give me your heart. He kept saying it. He kept saying it. He kept saying it. He said, that's his secret. He has given God his heart. He has given God everything. He says, my son, give me your heart. Many times we give him several things, but our heart. We give him our time, our money, and our stuff. We don't give him our heart. David didn't have any of such things. He didn't have anything left not to give since he had already given his heart. He gave God his heart such that when the Lord was looking for a table to feast on, he found David's table. David looked at God and said, Lord, I want to prepare you a table. Forget about what you can prepare for me. I'm looking for how to prepare for you a table. And on that table, God, the Lord found a, a, a five-course meal. And on one of those course meals was the surrendered heart of David. The Lord could flow through David. The Lord could ask David to do anything and he would do it. The Lord could just use David. The Lord could use him because he was surrendered. He was like a glove. The Lord could use him, fit into him, and just use him. But many of us have some of our idiosyncrasies and our thoughts and our ambitions standing in between ourselves and our submission to God. And that's why we are yet to prepare him a table. Because when he comes, he can't feast. But every single time he sees you, he knows you're about to collect from him. He knows you're about to collect from him. He knows you're about to ask him for something. But when he asks you for your own life, you're like, no, God, just give me a few minutes. Give me a few days. Give me a few years. Give me a few months. Let me just enjoy myself for a little season. So the, the first thing we see on David's table is a surrendered heart. A surrendered heart of worship. There was something about David. How many of you know that the, the opposite of love is not hate? Huh? The opposite of love is indifference. If I don't love someone, I'm indifferent about the person. Hate and love are actually on the same stick. They're just opposite ends. They are not opposites, quote and unquote. And I'll explain what I mean. How many of you have seen Beauty and the Beast? The Beauty and the Beast. If you've not seen it, and if you've seen Avengers, uh, that's, I don't know which generation is that, but the Beauty and the Beast, when you see the Beast destroying landscapes, destroying cars, destroying buildings, just to get to his beauty, what do you see? Do you see hatred, rage, or do you see love? Which of them do you see? He's, he's destroying, he's smashing, squashing, brushing, and all those things. And you're like, this guy is full of what? Rage, right? No, that's not what you see. You see love. Because the opposite end of love is hate. If I love someone, I will hate everything that stands against that love. I will hate it in the same breath that I love that person. My love for the person mirrored on the other side is hatred. Hatred for anything that stands between myself and that thing. The opposite of love is not hate. It is indifference. When I don't care, that's, that's actually when I do not like or love that person. And there's a gospel out there that is trying to make love acceptance and approval and you know just accept everything no that, that that's that's not love if i love someone and person is towing the wrong path love demands that i stand against it and say that's wrong don't do that and if you slap me i don't care i'll keep telling you the truth there was a season of my life i looked at one of my bones in the face and i told him the truth and he slapped me and i kept telling him, i kept telling him the truth and he kept slapping me and i was like guy they're slapping you can you calm down but well 
the truth loves. And love speaks the truth at all times. And so, something happened in, in Psalms chapter 139. Let's go there again, Psalms 139. And this, this is one of the things you see in the life of a surrendered heart. He loves God to the exclusion of the world. Psalms 139. <laughs> you see, it's funny how David was actually singing a love song to the Lord. He was telling God, Lord, I love you. <laughs> he was saying, Lord, how precious are thy thoughts towards me, O God? How great is the sum of them? Verse 17. He says, if I shall count them, they are more in number than the sand. When I awake, I'm still with thee. Surely thou wilt slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, ye bloody men. For they speak against thee wickedly. And thine enemies take thy name in vain. Do I not hate them? He says, oh Lord, I hate thee. Okay, oh Lord, those that hate thee, and am I not grieved with those that rise up against thee? This, this is where it now scares me. He says, I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. Because I love you, I have become enemies to your enemies. I have become lover to your lovers. Anything that stands against you and me, I hate that thing. So, in the same breath of communicating his love for God, he was demonstrating his hatred for anything that stood against himself and that God. Are you hearing what I'm saying? And so he said, I hate them with perfect, perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. And that was when he now began to say, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there's any wicked way in me. I hope I'm not one of those wicked people that I hate. I, I don't want to be one of them. I want to love you with everything. I, I surrender my heart. I, I invade my territories. Invade my members. I submit my members as instruments unto righteousness. Surrender heart in worship. That's what you see in David. There was nothing David could not give. There was nothing he couldn't give. There was nothing. There was just nothing he couldn't give. There was nothing he couldn't give God. I hope you know that worship is not in dancing and singing and lifting up holy hands. Worship is first a sacrifice. Because the first time worship was mentioned in scripture, it was Abraham that mentioned it, and there was no tambourine, there was no keyboard, there was no guitar, there was no drumsticks. All that there was was a sacrifice and a dagger <laughs> to slip the truth of his own son, the most precious thing to him. When they asked him and said, uh, what, what are we doing? He said, no, wait here, guys. We are going, myself and the lad. We are going up, Genesis 22. We are going up to worship. We are going yonder to worship. He had no songs. He had no playlist. He had no keyboard, nothing. But he said, I'm going to worship. The first time worship was used in scripture, it was used in the context of sacrifice. There was nothing David couldn't give God. The second thing I see on David's table, apart from a surrendered heart, is a kingdom-minded life of faith. And listen, this is a charge to both you and me. It may not be as exciting as telling you that everything has been finished from the foundations of the world, which it has, which is what we emphasized last week. But these are the sobering dimensions of Christian maturity, where you realize that, God, I, I know you have, you, have, you have done so much for me. I just want to return and give you a table too. I, I, I'm not an opportunist. I'm not a parasite. I also want to give you a table. I want you to be able to feel comfortable around me. 
And so the first thing I give you is a surrendered heart of worship. The second thing I give you is a kingdom-minded life of faith. Matthew chapter 6, if you begin to read from 30, they're about to begin to talk about how that a lot of people, all they use their faith for is what the Gentiles use their ambitions for. You know, money, cars, houses and clothes and all of those things. And he says, you ought not to be using your faith like that because, you see, everything you use your faith for reduces the value of your faith. I'll say that again. Your faith comes to the level of what you use it for. What you use your faith to objectify becomes the grade of your faith. So he says, if you keep using your faith for such things, he says you have little faith. Even when you get those things, your faith is still little. The reason why it's little is because you're not extending the use of your faith for kingdom grade matters. He says, because seek ye first, Matthew 6 verse 33, the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And he says, all these things that all the Gentiles seek after, that other Christians are now using their faith to objectify. He says, they are actually additions. They are not supposed to be the objects of your faith. Using your faith to get a car, using your faith to get a suit, using your faith to get a house, is a reduction in the weight of your faith. Your, your, your faith is weightier than those things you are expending it for. It's like using a big magnet to catch a pin. Are you hearing what I'm saying? He says when you dispense your faith in that direction, you have minimized the weight of your faith. I carry 100K, I say I want to go and buy a fridge. And part of the package in giving me an LG fridge is extension. Extension is an add-on, isn't it? And so when I buy fridge, I'm not saying I want to come and buy extension. I'm coming to buy refrigerator. And so when you give me the refrigerator, they will just tell me that, okay, guy, um, actually one of the things we do here is that we give those that come for our refrigerators, we give them, you know, a few uh, extensions as well. Would it not be foolish for me to carry the exact same 100K and say, Lord, or I'm going to LG and I'm saying, don't give me fridge. I only want the, the extension box. But that's exactly what a lot of us do. Faith is not designed to just feed your flesh and feed your comfort needs and all of those things. It's designed to upgrade the kingdom. It's designed to uplift and expand the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That is, that, that is the utmost use on deployment of faith. And so we carry the huge resource called faith and we begin to apply it in very miniature and caricature versions of what we're supposed to be using it for. And so we carry that same exact amount of money and we say, all I need is, is extension. Forget about the fridge. If I get the fridge, the extension, I don't need to ask for it. It's part of what comes with the fridge. If I will seek the kingdom with my faith, look at the things that David used his faith for. Not for once did we see David ask God for anything personal. Not once. The only time I realized that he did that was for his son that was about to die. And the moment he died, he woke up from where he was and he, he danced and he, he ate and worshipped God. That was the only time I realized that he even asked anything personal. All the things David used his faith for were kingdom great things. The restoration and the retrieval of the Ark of Covenant from the camp of the Philistines. Those were the things that David used his faith for. The building of the temple. The receiving of the pattern. From heaven, you think it's easy to replicate a pattern that God deleted. See, David had a tabernacle. It was not like the tabernacle of Moses. He came with a new order, which is another kettle of fish entirely. We can't even begin to tell you the dimensions of things that David saw. David saw things by revelation knowledge. The things that David saw, no other person in scripture saw them. 
the exact words that Jesus will say on the cross, he brought them forth. The exact words that Jesus will say in hell, he brought them forth. The exact dimensions of the crucifixion, he painted it for us. Nobody saw it the way, like, the way he did it. Nobody saw it like David. Those were the things he was using his faith for. He was using his faith to train 400 men. Even when he himself was destitute and a, a, a refugee in his own land became a victim of an insecure king. And right there, he was training 400 men. Those were the things he was using his faith for. Anytime your faith is dispersed in a direction that the benefit of that dispensation comes only to you and you alone, it is not kingdom grade enough. Because kingdom will not stop with you. Kingdom doesn't stop with you. Kingdom is to the ends of the earth. So Abraham was blessed so that the entire nations of the earth would be blessed. That was the kind of faith that Abraham used. That you see, if I get Isaac, Isaac is a link to Jesus. Jesus is the savior of the world. And until God made sure Abraham was no longer self-centered, he didn't bring Isaac to him. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Because the Lord told him in Genesis 15, I'm your shield and your exceeding great reward. Abraham said, what is that to me? I don't even have a child to prove what you are saying. He needed external validation to prove the promise of God. And the Lord took him on a seven-month journey, on a seven-chapter journey. By Genesis chapter 22, the Lord had shown him that indeed, I am all you need. And he was willing to give up Isaac for that same word. The same Isaac you needed to validate God's word. Seven chapters before, you are now willing to give him up. When it is now even more impossible to give birth again. It was impossible then, 75 years old. It's now more impossible. 99, and of course, 99 plus 17. 116 years of age. Kill your son, but believe that I'm still your shield and exceeding great reward. And he was willing to give up that son because he had ceased to see himself as the ultimate end of any kingdom project. He is not the end of the kingdom project. He knows that if God, you take this one, you give me another one. Forget about it because it is beyond me. It's beyond me. It's about the end of the earth. It's about the savior of the world. You are able to raise him up again. And so David was never so much about himself. He never used his faith to remove Saul from the throne. He could have used his faith. He could have said, Ah, Lord, don't go go to me. This guy has been chasing me. Lord, remove him now. Get him out of that throne. I've been anointed king since I was 17. What is this guy still doing on the throne? I'm 23 now. Lord, six years since I've been anointed. And I'm still on... He never used his faith in one second to attempt to usurp Saul. Not one day. He was using his faith at kingdom grade levels. Kingdom grade. And when the Lord told him that, sorry, you can't build, he said, don't worry, sir. I can't build those, that's fine. And we ensure that Solomon does not even have to raise one thing, one dollar, to build this temple. He raised so much money. He himself gave billions of dollars if you convert it to the, the, the currency of today billions of dollars just to to push the kingdom forward kingdom great kingdom great check the life of faith of david it was never about anything personal how 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 do we get there you see now people boast about the things they got oh, yeah. the, 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 the little the little extensions they boast about how they use 100k to buy extensions and we, we celebrate it is it, not a, is it not an abuse of 100K? Because if, if, you, if someone tells you he used 100K to buy extension, will you not insult the person and say, ah, 
If you don't know what to use money for, can you not give people that know how to use the money? How can you carry hundred? Can you want to go and buy extension box? Abi, some people, is there an extension box that connects us to heaven straight? Maybe that one can be worth that price. But that's exactly what we do when we carry the energy level of faith. And we step it down so much that it can only power a tube. The energy level of faith that can power a city, a nation, a generation, a dispensation. We step it down so much that all it can power is now a candle in our rooms. The energy level of faith is so powerful that by the time David was done, they couldn't, they couldn't, they couldn't limit his impact to his family alone. They said David saved his generation according to the will of God. How did he save his generation? By faith. He saved his generation by faith because he didn't deploy his faith for personal matters. If he deployed it for kingdom matters, his personal end would be sorted. So he didn't make his personal end the end of the faith. If I can see the ends of the earth, what is my backyard that I cannot see? Are you hearing what I'm saying? And so the Lord told Abraham, look right now and see to the ends of the earth. As far as your eyes can see, completely remove your gaze from your environment. Your environment will not become the focus of your faith. Get to see the end of the... I'm sorry, please, apologies. Sometimes these things can serve as a limitation. When Boaz tried, but sometimes these things can serve as a limitation. And so we see a surrendered heart of worship. We see a kingdom-minded faith life. A kingdom-minded faith life. Ask David, what are you using your faith for? You won't hear any of the things that some of us say sometimes. I'm looking for how to train 400 men and raise an army in the wilderness. Ah, yeah, come on now. Ah, yeah. It was not about him. Never about him. That, that, those were the things on David's table. So when God sees such things on anybody's table, he's attracted. A surrender out of worship. A kingdom-minded faith life. Such, such. And then there is something else on his table because this is a five-course meal. There is something else on his table. It's bold convictions against popular culture. Hi! This is something that a lot of us in our generation have become completely bankrupt of. Bold conviction against popular culture. Listen, David became the enemies. He became enemies to the enemies of God. Do you know that God has enemies? Do you know that? Your own enemy may be sickness and disease and poverty and all of those things, but God has enemies too. His enemy is popular culture. Yes. That's one of his biggest enemies. One of his biggest enemies. Those things want you to bend and bow and burn. But your ability to stand, even when you are threatened with your life, that is what shows that indeed you have the bold conviction of someone who has prepared the Lord at the table. When you also shift grounds and merge and fit in and blend in, just so that your head will not be sticking out so they don't strike it with a hammer. You are already losing the boldness of your convictions. There was nobody's opinion in this life that was stronger than the convictions of David in his heart. Nobody's opinion. Not his wife's opinion. Not the opinion of anybody in the entire land of Israel. Nobody could convince him otherwise about something he knew to do right. Not one person. The kind of conviction you find in the likes of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that they enter into Babylon and they refuse to do what every other person is doing. Such boldness in convictions. Such boldness. How can you say the king told you to eat and you say you will not eat, you will be eating vegetables. And you don't care 
what anybody says about it. And he said, come back in 10 days. Your, your convictions are so strong. And Nebuchadnezzar says, bow. And he said, no, we will not bow. And we are no longer even careful. We've been respecting you all this while. And we celebrate your ministry. But guys, what? We cannot bow to this God. We only bow to one God. And doesn't care if you threaten us with our own lives as well. Our lives are hid in Christ with God. For you to get to us, you have to break through God and break through Christ and then you get to us. And then by the time you are done getting to us, you have to break back through Christ and break back through God. And so let's, let's see how far you can go with that. And even if you kill our mortal bodies, we are still not fearing you because you can't touch our soul and our spirits. Two-thirds of us is still secure. We are still the winners, even in death. They have such mindsets. Or is two-thirds not pass mark? This person can only touch your body cannot touch your soul and your spirit but we fear him that can touch both soul spirit and including the body ah yeah it's a boldness of convictions boldness of convictions and so this guy was worshiping and dancing before the lord sweating the way our md was sweating this morning and somebody with makeup in the back corner of our of our house like how, how marvelously did the king dress himself in front of all the the, the maidens in the land today <laughs> and David looked at his wife. This is his wife that the king gave him. He loved her so much. He, he, Saul had given her to another man. David asked for her back. He loved her so much. Forget it. David loved Milka. But when he came to standing in between himself and his worship of God, he, 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 he schooled her, took her to the cleaners. He looked at, he looked at Milka and said, the same God that anointed me ahead and above your father. It's, yeah, it was David that used that word first. Your father. <laughs> it was David. He said it. He said, it's the same God that anointed me and placed me ahead over all Israel, above your father. That same God is what I'm dancing before. If you don't like it, you can as well go barren for the rest of your life. Oh yes, because she did go barren. When a prophet is angry, there are some more things that happen than the things he says. His emotions carry power. When a prophet is angry, his emotions carry power. I, I've seen that life, real life, in this life, not just in the Bible, in this life. I've seen how the emotions of somebody anointed of God, how far reaching it can go. Emotions alone. God sometimes becomes one with his anointed. And so their emotions become his emotions. And he demonstrates it. And the thing David thought of was what happened to Milka. Yeah. David sanctioned the barrenness. Because he's not the husband. He's the husband, so he was also supposed to go barren, but was only, she was the only one that went barren, not David. Even though he was her husband, he was fruitful, she was barren. Higher. Because she stood in between himself and his worship. He had such bold convictions. Some of us cannot even put up a status of God on our WhatsApp. No, 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 this is, this is conviction service. The Lord, the Lord will convict you. Conviction. Say, ah, no, 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 I want to be woke. You want to be woke? The only, the only person that is woke is Jesus. He was risen from the dead. He's the only woke person. And, and if you want to be woke, you have to stay risen with him. You can't be woke in deadness. How can you be woke in carnality? You are woke in deadness. You are woke in trespasses and sins. 
One person's opinion is stronger than your own conviction. One person. A whole nation's opinion was not strong enough to be louder than David's one single conviction. A whole nation's opinion. They shot him down at the Valley of Ella. That was the, that, that was the, the theater of arts that day. The Valley of Ella. Goliath is there. His brothers are silencing him. They were bigger than him at home. They are still trying to usurp his authority even in the Valley of Ella, telling him to keep quiet. Saul was telling him, hey, are you sure about this? Can you? He was the only one that believed they could win this guy. He was the only one in the entire army. And all their opinions put together was not enough to weaken his own one conviction. Such boldness. Such boldness of conviction. The Lord, I mean, the council of Sanhedrin looked at Peter and said, stop preaching this Jesus. This Jesus you are preaching, come on, stop preaching him. And he said, sorry, even though I couldn't look at the little girl in the face some months back. I'm sorry about this. <laughs> I've changed. The Holy Ghost has come upon me. Uh, I don't care to answer you in this matter. We cannot stop to preach and to teach these things that we have both heard and seen. Sorry, sir. You beat us till we die. We'll continue to preach. And they went back to their own company. And Bible says they prayed. And Bible says that, oh my God, the foundation of the place where they were all gathered together began to shake. And Bible says with great power, the apostles gave witness of the resurrection of Jesus and great grace was upon them all. Great grace, boldness. That is one thing we lack actually as a generation. We are too woke. Woke in trespasses. Woke in carnality. The Lord cannot look for a bold vessel. Bible calls, he's looking for people who he can use as a jawbone of an ass. Who he can wield. Such people have to be bold. You can't be the kind of person that is always bowing to popular culture, bowing to what everybody is saying, bowing to what people's opinions are about you. And that's the reason why when God does something, you don't want to put it on your status because you don't want people to think you are too religious. He died for you, guy. Is your status too much to rent for him? He died for you. You see, this is the kind of conviction that David could not understand why you cannot dance before the Lord, why you cannot shout. Why your own cannot be too much? Because your own actually should be too much. If you knew what God did, your own would be too much. Nobody will be able to cope with your excesses. You will have spiritual excesses. Because you know what the Lord did. You couldn't silence David. You couldn't silence him. His convictions were stronger than popular culture. So look at the popular culture in our time and day right now. And ask yourself, are my convictions stronger than popular culture? Are my convictions stronger than popular culture? What are the things I sponsor on my timelines? What are the things? Do I sponsor, you know, new age philosophies? Do I sponsor those things? Do I sponsor what my heart believes? Do I have conviction in my heart? I have set the Lord always before me. Behold, he's at my right hand. I will not be moved. He doesn't care if 10,000 are around me. Psalms 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the enemies came against me to get my flesh, he says, hey, 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 I meditate in this reality. One thing have I desired, and that I will seek after. That I will dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. You know, one day I was reading that particular part of scripture, and I saw a revelation. Psalms 27, so powerful. I saw David in a room, an army outside, beating down the house, blowing it up using all the grenades and all the 
affliction in the world. They were just trying to blow it up. They just wanted to get the only David. They came with all the ammunition of the world. Imagine this in 3D. And then David is inside. He's not praying. He's seated. And he's hearing all the loudness of the noise. And the only reason why he's seated calmly is because he's in another space. He has excluded the world in his realities. He could not be moved. I have set the Lord always before me such that distraction is no longer powerful. I have set the Lord always before me. To set the Lord always before you is to limit your distraction to him alone. <laughs> to limit your distraction to one thing. To set the Lord always before me. He says, my face has been set like that of a flint. So nothing can move you. Everybody is bowing. And Nebuchadnezzar is threatening you to kill you. He says, see, threaten us ten times more. Increase the intensity of the fire seven times more. It is your men that will run at risk, not us. Because if we die or leave, we win. So whether it comes to save our mortal bodies, it doesn't matter. The same conviction that Stephen. That's the, that's the kind of conviction. That while he stalks and in chains, Paul was saving his captors inside the middle of the sea. He was saving his captors. He was saving his captors. He was bound in chains. Oh my God. Bound in chains on his way to Caesar, I believe. And, and there was a storm. And he now said, can I say a word? And they said, go ahead. And he said, the, the, the angel of the Lord stood by me at night. Whose I am and whom I serve. And he said, because of me, all of you will be saved. So I just thought to share that word with you. Convictions. Even in fetters and in stocks and in chains. And he gets to Agrippa and Festus. And he says, can I, can I say a word? And he says, the Lord of glory, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he begins to preach. In fetters and in chains. And himself and Silas get into the middle of the night in a jail. And they are not praying and singing to get saved. They are not singing and praising God to escape. Because if they, that was their motivation, then they would have escaped once the doors were flung open. Because the moment they started singing and they started praying, Bible says everything scattered. All the chains were broken. And they waited and got everybody converted, but they left. Got everybody converted. Because it was not about escape for them. It was not about escape. It was that in spite of our chains and our stocks, we'll still praise you. Right in the middle of a jail system, in stocks and in chains, that the mistakes of the jailers was that they left their mouth open. They left their mouth open. Because at midnight, the Bible says they prayed and they sang and they danced in their chains. And they were praising God. Such boldness in convictions. Boldness of convictions. That you look at Festus, a present-day president, a present-day governor. I look at him in the face and say, I'm about to preach to you, sir. Give your life to Christ or you rot in hell. They're like, oh, wait, do you know who you are talking to? I don't care who you are, sir. God is bigger than you now, Abi. At least, God is bigger than two of us, so I can preach to you. Such boldness in convictions. Such boldness. Festus was about to get saved. He said, ah, but people are here. People are here. Ah, no worry, I'll think about this. We looked at Paul and said, too much knowledge is about to run you mad. No, you are the one that is mad. You are seeing the gospel and you refuse to receive it because of people. That's madness. That's madness. You see the gospel of salvation that is, is capable of saving you to the uttermost. How long can you live on earth? 120 max. And then there is an eternity of endlessness afterwards. 
and you refuse the gospel that will save you in that dispensation for the opinions of men that actually don't like you. Ha, it's madness. But he looked at Paul from his other end and said it was Paul that was mad. No, he was the one. He, he has exalted the opinions of men over and above his own convictions. He was getting the convictions to be saved. But he silenced it. Because ah, how politically correct would it be that Agrippa and Festus got saved in the presence of, of a criminal? Uh, Say so no, Kamari, Pilate knew Jesus was, was what's the word? Was innocent. The Bible says in a bid to please the people, he, he now was now doing hypo, hypocrites. He now washed his hand. You are washing your hand, but that is just as dirty. No convictions. <laughs> and Pilate thought he was the one that had the power to release Jesus. I said, do you have the power? I have the power to release you. For the first time, Jesus spoke. <laughs> because he, did, he was led to the slaughter. I didn't say anything. Pilate wanted to assume a posture that he was not to be credited. And the Lord told him, he said, no, no, I, nobody put me here, sir. <laughs> I laid down my life. And I take it again. Not you. Boldness in convictions. How bold are your convictions? How bold are your convictions? Say Jesus is Lord, but only you know Jesus is Lord. Nothing around you, no one around you. Your office don't know Jesus is Lord. When you come into the office, you still write the same time that every other person writes. But Jesus is Lord though. But in that office, Jesus is not so Lord. But here in this room, ah, uh, oh Lord, pa. But outside here, no other person knows that Jesus is the Lord of your life. I heard a story of a man, Jesus Christ, one of the most powerful stories I've heard in a long time. He was a Japanese soldier that was seconded to a particular place during the Second World War. It was called the Gorilla Operation, and he had three or four men with him in that Gorilla Operation, and they were, they were deposited into that island during the Second World War. And they said, you know, we'll just continue to fight until we send you word that indeed the fight is over. And this man continued to fight and continued to fight. And then by 1945, I believe, the World War was over. The Second World War was over. And so the emperor didn't think it right to inform those people that are already on the guerrilla operation, killing men up, you know, up and down, to stop killing people, that the war is over. And so this man you know, is still there fighting, doing his guerrilla operation. And then, of course, they flew in and they dropped you know, newspapers and pamphlets telling everybody that I get to listen that the war, the war is over. The war is over. Stop the fight. And this man picked up one of those pamphlets and said, this is propaganda. My emperor has not told me the war is over. And so the war continues. And he continues to fight and continues to fight and continues to fight and continues to fight till 1974. Because before then, somebody comes from Japan and, and convinces him that the war is over. He said, no, the war is not over. My emperor has not spoken through my commanding officer. Those are the only two people I listen to. The war is not over. And he continues to fight. And then the emperor himself shows up and says, the war is over. And he says, that's fine. The war is over. Because he listens only to one person. Not what every other person is saying. Not the opinions of the world. He had only one commanding officer. And that commanding officer listens only to the emperor. And so anything his commanding officer tells him through the emperor, he believes. If you are not his commanding officer and you are not his emperor, you have no right to his ears. You have no right to his ears. But many of us, 
our commanding officer is Christ. Sometimes, or rather, the emperor himself is Christ. And he has used men like us to be your commanding officers. Humbly. <laughs> to be your commanding officer. But, well, you know, we have several other things that we listen to. Come on now. That's not the way. Boldness and conviction. All of us need to change. This is the life of David. Boldness and convictions. If God anointed me, it doesn't matter. He himself will put me on that throne. I won't try to assist it. Boldness and convictions. Even when all his colleagues were telling him, kill this guy. You have two opportunities to kill the person that is your arch enemy. And you say, no, you won't kill him because God says, touch not my anointed. Why, you, why, why do you keep believing this gospel thing, this church thing? Why don't you just curse God and die? Boldness and convictions. And David says, even if it takes 20 years, because 13 years after I was anointed king was the first time he smelt the throne. And he only smelt the throne of one tribe of the entire 12 tribes. And seven years after, he now started reigning over Israel. And even at that, he still subjected the people that came to anoint him to tests. Are you sure about this? Are you sure you're not trying to play me? Because I'm not eager for the throne if God doesn't want me there. Ah, boldness in convictions. Where it is not gains, it's not what people say, what people think that matters. Can, can you boldly speak your faith in the presence of several negative voices? Like Paul did, like Stephen did, like Jesus did. Boldness and convictions. You see, this, this is the table to prepare for the Lord. When you prepare such table before the Lord, He will anoint your head with oil. Your cup will run over. Are you hearing what I'm saying? The first thing on David's table is a large heart. David had a large heart. David had a very large heart. Could you, can you imagine that the first, the first level of spoils, the first, the first dimension of spoils that David was going to have in his career as a soldier, everything, he gave it out. Everything. Everything. So when Ziklag was spoiled by the Amalekites and all of that, and then he came there and he asked, he asked God and said, Lord, do I go? And God said, go, pursue, overtake, and recover all. And he recovered everything and all of that. Do you know that he didn't take a thing from the spoils, apart from his wife and children? Do you know what David started doing? He started dividing the spoils, dividing the spoils, dividing the spoils. He, he said, take it to that man. Remember when we were in the cave of Adulam, that man that used to supply us uh, stuff that time that helped us, take it to him. You remember when we were at Gath, that guy that helped us, take it to him. You remember when, you remember when, and he split everything he got in battle, and not even one thing came to him. Not even one thing. Such a large-heartedness. How can you yourself be trying to survive, and 400 men ask you to accommodate them. Imagine you are so broke and 400 people, 400, not two, 400, come to you and say, we are very broke. Can you help us? Are you not going to be angry at them? Uh, 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 what are you talking about? Do you know how broke I am? You know, you know in Nigeria, we compete. So someone tells you, ah, I broke. Oh. How much do you have? They have to kill. Ah, you're not broke now. <laughs> then you broke. <laughs> 2K. 2K. <laughs> You'll be king. You didn't learn when they come to being broke. You are learning. Say me now. 15 naira. I no get. Because you think he's, I want to say 15 naira. That's what is my account. He's a 15 naira. I no get. <laughs> because we like, 
that what you tell 400 people that are coming to you? Say, please, help us. Help us. Just help our lives. Broke, in distress, discontented and indebted. That is, they were not just broke. They were owing people. They were not just broke. They were owing people. 400 people. Owing people. They are now became your responsibility and you yourself, you're a vagabond. You, are, you, you don't own any property. You are in a wilderness. You are in a desert. You are still trying to survive, but you still accommodate 400 people. Listen, largeness of heart is not in the amount in your bank account. Largeness of heart is a hard thing. The way you can accommodate people is not a matter of how rich you are. It is about the largeness of your heart. If 2,000 people came to David, he would have still accommodated them. His heart was that large. He accommodated all of them and he trained them until they became the mighty men of David. Until they became largeness of heart. Largeness of heart. Abraham was one of such men too. Lot, the person you tried to help, you brought him from the village. You helped his ministry in Lagos. Then you have a business and he's also booming. And so you are not fighting. You say, oh yeah, oh God, Lord, see, I didn't come here for us to come and start fighting. Choose any of these two places. And he looks around and says, I choose the better one. And you let him go. And this guy gets into trouble. And you still carry 318 men inside your household to go and rescue such an ingrate. And after rescuing him, we don't see anywhere in scripture where Lord said thank you. Not one place. Not one day did the Lord look at Abraham and say, for all you have done for me. I just want to say thank you. Not once. Not once. Largeness of heart. Abraham could have died. Why was he doing that? Largeness of heart. Largeness of heart. When the Lord sees that in you, he knows that your cup running over will not stay at your cup. The reason why your cup runs over is for those that are around you. For David's cup that was running over, every one of the 400 men were fed from his cup. From his cup. Because as long as he was anointed, his cup was running over. And as long as his cup was running over, they were not wasted. Listen, if God does not know that your cup running over will translate to other lives being saved, your cup will not run over. Because he won't waste his anointing. He anoints your head with oil because your head is connected to your cup. Now, once your cup is now being filled, think of other people. That is what pushes it to the running over dimension. Think of other people to bless. Think of other people to help. Think of other people to, 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 to be a blessing, to, to lift out. That is when it becomes kingdom grade, isn't it? When it does not end with you. When it translates to others. Are you, are, are you still with me? This is the last session, so I can go extra five, ten minutes. Is that fine? Praise the name of the Lord. Are we still together? So how large-hearted are you? How large-hearted are you? Some of you, when the Lord gives you one million, you're already planning for the second million that he will give you. You're already planning for how to consume it on yourself. The second million that he has not given you yet. You're already planning for it. But some people, before the one million comes, they already have a way to channel it to the lives of others. That is why the one million will come. And much more than that will still keep coming. Because God knows that once your cup is filled, you're already thinking of others. Even before your cup is filled, you're already thinking, that is why it will run over. It will be in you a well springing forth to everlasting life. In a well. A well is just for you, but it ought to spring forth so that others can also benefit from it. Large-heartedness. And then the last thing on David's table was the fact that... <laughs> this is so powerful. 
presence-centered destiny. What does that mean? Listen, your destiny is not an experience. Your destiny is God. I, I, I'll say that again. Many of us think of, so what was, what was Joseph's destiny to become prime minister? No. What was David's destiny to become king? No. Your destiny is God. So when mercy and goodness are pursuing you because you're anointed and your cup is running over, you still see the presence as a pursuit still. In spite of the fact that mercy and goodness are breathing down your neck to bless you and bless you, you don't see the blessedness of being the attraction of blessings and goodness as the ultimate pursuit and destiny. That even beyond mercy and goodness pursuing me, there's still something in front of me. They are pursuing me because I'm in pursuit of his presence. The moment I make them my pursuit, they stop to pursue me. The reason why they are actually pursuing me is because I'm also aligned with his presence. The moment I turn back, they'll continue to follow his presence and leave me behind. So he says, you anoint my head with oil, my cup runs over. And he says, the reason why my cup runs over is because of other people. And then afterwards, goodness and mercy now begins to pursue me. Because God sees that you are a channel to the ends of the earth. So how much more can we pump in the direction of this guy? Because once we begin to pump things in the direction of this guy, every single person will feel it in their families. Because once Abraham is blessed, all the families will feel it. All the families of the heavens and earth will feel it because Abraham is blessed. Ah, Abraham will be really blessed. So mercy and goodness continues to pursue Abraham because he is an extension to the ends of the earth. But the reason why mercy and goodness are pursuing him is because the presence is his destiny. It is not an experience David is looking for. David is not looking You see, let him not be king again. Let him just be in the presence of God. He's fine. Some of us will remove from the presence of God once the promises of an experience are no longer as, as, as uh, they're not as instant as we imagined. You are in his presence, but the things you, that God promised you are not coming as fast. So like, this is your presence, self. I, I will go. No. Because for David, the presence was his destiny. The presence was his destiny. Listen, for David, the whole of his presence was greater than the sum of the parts. What do I mean by that? Many of us, the sum of the parts is greater than the whole for us. So what God can give is, is part of his parts. The mercy and the goodness, the blessedness, the prosperity, the peace, the righteousness. So for us, the, the, the sum of the parts, just give me some of the parts. The whole is really dispensable. But for David, the whole was always greater than the sum of the parts. His presence was greater than all the things God can give combined. It's still not equal to God alone. Everything God can give give it to me. It's still lesser than just having his presence. So, David prioritized God's presence over everything else that God could give him, including goodness and mercy. Because the verse should have ended, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me. Full stop. No. It continues. And I will constantly be in pursuit of the presence of God all the days of my life. All the days of my life. All the days of my life. That is, mercy and goodness would always be behind me, not in front of me. I'm always pursuing his presence. They are the ones pursuing me. Those things will never become my focus. They would always be behind. I will keep pursuing his presence. His presence is my destiny. 
once you have a presence-centered destiny, God knows he cannot, listen, he cannot demotivate you by you lacking anything. Ah. Even the world cannot motivate you by you having anything. God cannot demotivate you from serving him if he removes some things from you. He said, forget what you can give me. I will love you. I will serve you. God knows that if he removes everything, you are not demotivated. And that is the same proof that shows that even when they give you everything, you are not extra motivated. Because the presence is your destiny. Not goodness, not mercy. Not the good things of life. But his presence. Because you will choose his presence over the good things of life. But of course, his presence drags the good things of life along. So when I have his presence, those things will follow, but hey, those must not be my focus. Let's go to one verse before, before I wrap up right now. Hebrews 11. <laughs> Are you with me? Are you blessed? Hebrews 11, 24. By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. So sometime during this week, a rich man gave about three cars to his daughters. Blessed their lives with cars. Not just cows. Because they are cars and they are cows. Both of them are means of transportation. <laughs> But there are cars and there are cows. Some have cows, but some of us have cars. These are cars, praise God. Good cars. And I'm sure many of us saw it on our statuses on Twitter. Ah, Lord! How I wish I was Otedola's son. How I wish I was this man's son. Dangote's son. I mean, songs have sold just on those names. Because that's the value system of our generation. So people are wishing they were sons and daughters to people who could bless their lives without they working one extra day. You see that? But this is Moses. He says he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He said, I don't want to be again. Why? What? Have you seen another Pharaoh's daughter somewhere? I can upgrade your conditions. I can give you more things. Why are you living being called my surname? You don't want to be called. You know, you know how many people wish they were called some kinds of surname? And Moses says, I don't want to have my son name to be Pharaoh again. I don't want to be... Have you found the, the Queen of England to adopt you? Wait, wait in the palace. He says, no, it's not because of the Queen of England. I've not found... It's not a better condition that is making me live. It's conviction and destiny. He says he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Why? Let's go and check. Why would you leave such comfort? He was heir to the throne. He was going to be the most powerful man in the world. <laughs> Some things don't make sense. So he says, by faith Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer. Ah! People are suffering and saying, if I could just be the son of Pharaoh's daughter, Kai! If I can just, if I can just bear this name, if I can just have access to three cars, choosing rather to have, to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. For a season. For a season. This is the powerful part. It says, esteeming the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. Ah, that means the problem is in our evaluation. 
Bible says, esteeming the reproach of Christ, greater riches. That is, to Moses, he was richer with the Israelites than in the palace. He was richer. But you ask him, how rich are you? Inside the wilderness, he was richer than all the resources Egypt could give him combined. He was richer because he esteemed it richer. He esteemed it richer. He esteemed it richer. Presence-centered destiny. Will you go with me, Lord? If you don't go, I'm not going. If you don't go, I'm broke. If you go with me, I'm rich. It doesn't matter what I have in my accounts. That's all that matters. Presence-centered destiny. Esteeming the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. For he had respect for the recompense of the word. 2 Corinthians chapter 15, chapter 5, verse 15, as we begin to wrap up right now. Let's start from verse 14. For the love of Christ constrains us because we thus esteem. We thus esteem. We thus esteem. We esteem. The way a Christian thinks is different from the way any other person thinks. You think and esteem differently. You don't think like a normal person. You are not normal. Tell your neighbor. You are not normal. Do like this. Uh, you, you feel? You are not insulting the person. You are giving a compliment. You are not normal. <laughs> Some people are asked. No, normal. Ah, I'm lazy. No, normal. <laughs> I didn't say that one. He says, esteeming the reproach of Christ. That was Hebrews 11. But look at what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, for the love of Christ constrains us because we thus judge, we thus esteem, that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and woke again. Isn't it? He's the only woke person. Any other person trying to be woke is not woke. The person is dead in trespasses and sins. How can you be woke in deadness? And so, when you come to church, and you come early to church, and you are loving your God, and you are reading your Bible every day, it's because you have strength in your convictions. There's nothing in the world will bully me into submission. Nothing in the world will bully me into submission. My heart is surrendered in worship. My faith life is kingdom-minded. I am present-centered. My heart is large. What's the fifth thing? I, I didn't mention that. I already mentioned that. First one is what? It's surrendered how to worship. The second thing, kingdom-minded, faith life, boldness in convictions. Yeah. Yeah, against popular culture. So when they say your own is too much, it's okay. Your own is supposed to be too much. That, that is a compliment. Now you kill Jesus. No, I didn't kill him, but he died for me. Yeah, yeah. That's the mindset. You see, this was the mindset that David had. That was why when the Lord saw his table, he says, I have been preparing tables for everybody in the world, but only this guy chooses to prepare me a table. And he sees those things on his table. So he anoints his head with oil. You see, because the way he anointed him shows how glad the Lord was. So much that his cup was filled. He said, don't worry. It will continue to run over. Because he had all the things that the Lord loves. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, I present your bodies a living sacrifice, only acceptable unto God, which is a reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world. Be not conformed to popular culture. Be not conformed to all the other opinions in this world. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove that which is good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. 
when we prepare a table before the Lord, everything we find in Psalm chapter 23 will no longer become something that we are so much in search of. They become a consequence of our love for Him. They become a consequence, a byproduct of our pursuit of His presence. So please listen to every of these teachings again. Listen to them again. All the 16 or 17 now. 17. So flip the table on God. God is looking for how to bless you. You say, Lord, I want to bless you too, sir. I want to bless you too. I want, I want to give my life as a living sacrifice. Flip the table on God. God doesn't have it very often. He's always preparing tables for people. Preparing tables for people. And he gets there and they just say, thank you. And they just start eating. And then he gets to your table and he says, sir, before you, before you go ahead, I'd like to prepare you a table. That's David. Everything we see in Psalms 23 was produced by that kind of man. That kind of man. The Lord bless our hearts in Jesus' name. Let's rise to our feet. Wow! What a word! For more messages, connect with our tribesmen across all social media platforms at Parpoint Tribe.